Hello and welcome to another episode of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Six. And Father, in the last conversation, we were talking about when I was going through the gospel passages here and had a question that didn't feel like it fit in. And that's when we were talking about when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This one is going to be on Holy Thursday. And I guess I should have asked these in the episodes in the order that we do them during Holy Week. But, you know, here we are in the way that it was. And well, actually, uh, I'll just insert a little word. So Psalm 22 is used on Palm Sunday. It's not used on Good Friday. Ah, um, Psalm, well Psalm 31 is used on Good Friday, which is the one that I mentioned. Into your hands, I commend my spirit. And uh, and and you said at the la- end of the last episode, I didn't get a chance to get in there because I had to look it up. Uh, um, the uh, so Psalm 22 on Palm Sunday does include the words of glory okay. in the in the context of praying it. So anyway, just some some little so to say uh, you're in order because we just moved from Palm Sunday to Holy Thursday. So you're you're not out of order yet. And, uh, and then carry on with Holy Thursday. Well, that, that, that's good. As you know, these episodes for their original release are going to be coming out just before Lent. Um, we know that there's a lot of people that binge listen to us later in the fact. Uh, nonetheless, my going through the readings of, of the events of, of Holy Thursday, of the agony at the garden, it kind of comes to me in a thought process that it was not neat and organized as it might get portrayed in some movies or art. Um, and that there, there's a lot of more emotions going on there than the simply Judas comes up, kiss Jesus, and then everyone goes home. Um, it seems that this was a lot of chaos when I was going through it, particularly reading um, from Mark's gospel is the one that, that, that was these revelations were hitting upon me. First off, they're showing up with a bunch of weaponry. Um, there's a mob showing up with weaponry, and anytime you have a mob arriving, order kind of does not live in those same waters, um, just as a starting point. And there seems to be a lot of details, again, specifically looking at Marx, because that's the one that I, I was reading at the time, that just almost get thrown in there without context. And I bring this up because in so much modern, especially American media sources, it's essentially designed for you only pay attention to one thing and nothing else really goes on. Very rarely do you get two conversations happening at the same time, two points of important action happening at the same time, but that's not really life, is it? And specifically the way that I foresee this is, all the apostles fall asleep when they're not supposed to. Um, they're supposed to be out on watch, which by the fact that they're already out on watch and Jesus has just called out Judas a couple of hours ago saying that you're going to betray me and all of them were there and witnessed it. it, it it's almost like you're supposed to be on high alert. You guys can't even stay up. So there's a first off a disappointment there that I think it's pretty easily seen. But when they arrive... You get one of the apostles, Peter, pulling out his sword, getting ready to stab people. Some of them initially run away due to the size of the fact that they're outnumbered by the mob. Um, One of them, and this is, I guess, part of the question I ask from Mark specifically is, 
it says another got tackled and avoided it, and then the naked man ran away. So I just assumed that he got tackled, they were trying to wrestle him, and he just bailed out of his clothes and started running. Um, so I assume he was in a rope or something. Um, but when you think of these combinations of events, a mob showing up, people running away, there's no order in that. There's there's literally flight and fight panic. Um, and you see Peter go do the fight and most of the other ones running away. And the only calm one in the whole thing is Jesus and Judas, um, which being the two main actors seems so contrary and so surreal to how I would think of an event going on that, that when someone comes to get arrested, he would be just as much panicked as anyone else. You know, for anyone who's ever watched any of these police raid shows, when they go to something like a drug den or something, everyone's running away and panicking. There's not just one guy who's cool and mellow about it. Everyone is freaking out. And I, I just find this observation as a contrary to the way that it's normally portrayed. Um, and B, it just feels like this is even more surreal than it was the way it was portrayed before. So, Father, I could be completely wrong. I'm accepting that as a potential starting point here. But this was some of the thoughts I had um, read it, reading the uh, Holy Thursday from Mark's perspective. Yeah. No, again, Joe, I just really appreciate your um, you're digging into the real details of the scripture and your willingness to ask questions like, what's that about? What in the world? Um, it's a great starting point for prayer, reflection, questions, you know, um, and really encourage all of our listeners to do that kind of thing. Um, again, read it, ask questions, write these things down, try to be careful about drawing uh, facile conclusions, si- simplistic, overly simplistic conclusions that um, presume that there's something richer than you think that's there and uh, is is worth reflecting on. Um, you know, one one of the things to draw from the example that you're giving, which uh, only Mark uh, notices and and uh, well, only Mark speaks about in his gospel. The other three evangelists do not speak about that detail of the young man and the the word is neoniskos in greek and it's only used three times in the whole gospel and all four gospels so there's something unique about that word neoniskos the young man Uh, there were different ages of men that were indicated by different words that are being used so when jesus is 13 in the temple a different uh word is used and i don't know it offhand but um, anyway, this is young man. It's a little bit older than that. So um, that's interesting to note. The fact that there is a scuffle, they grab his robe apparently, and he pulls away from it and runs away naked. That's interesting. Um, it, uh, the word naked, gymnos, also occurs a limited number of times in the Gospels. And it's kind of interesting to see where it shows up, uh, including when Peter is... Uh, on the boat in John 21, fishing, and it, it, the evangelist says, uh, Jesus shows up on the shore, and it says that, that Peter was naked. So um, now, was he actually buck naked sitting on the boat, or you know, what does this mean? But, but anyway, words are really intentional in the Gospels, and that's one of the, the principles that we use in studying the Scripture, is that 
the words are intentional. The evangelists, the, the gospel writers are intentional about the words they use. The Holy Spirit, who is the primary author of sacred scripture, is intentional about the words that he uses. And so the fact that Peter is, Gymnos is naked, connects with other examples of nakedness. And then we can start to draw parallels like, hmm, I wonder how this goes together with that. And uh, so there's a, and then there's a, a kind of whole process. If we think about it, you know, this whole naked thing, like that's how Adam and Eve were in the beginning. They were naked without shame. And then when sin entered in, Adam covered himself, they covered themselves and then God replaced leaves with animal skins. And so sort of clothing began, but there's something that's more like paradise in nakedness. And, and so uh, now don't take, draw conclusions about what I'm saying. I'm not inviting everybody to run out naked to uh, demonstrate paradise or something, but just to say there's in the terms of the scripture, there's a, there's a connection there. And so um, he, they're in a garden and this young man is becoming naked like Adam was in the garden. So these are little things that should start to make stuff go off in our minds. And, and then it's as Jesus is entering into the passion, it's stripping off the coverings. What, what is Adam doing in the garden? He's hiding himself from God ultimately. And then he's living behind that veil as, as we are. But what is it that strips the covering that removes the shame that makes it possible again to be naked in the presence of God. Well, it's the redemption. It's the passion of Christ that does that. So this is one way of sort of elaborating out what those details are doing there and why the evangelist would bother to include that incident. Um, there's a lot of richness there, but also what you're saying about like, these things are messy. I mean, who would design something like this? Why are there these random details? Why is only this evangelist included? And we say, well, because it's actually historical. <laughs> it's not just a symbolic treatment. It's not just archetypal. It's not just a, you know, a sort of fanciful, fanciful story that's trying to illustrate some other point. It's not an allegory or a, or a fable. It's a historical reality. And the real messiness of human beings shows up in it. Um, so even some of the things preceding the Passover, like go find the guy who's carrying the water jar and like tell him to untie his colt and then show us to the upper room. The master is ready for like, what is that all about? Just seems like a bunch of random things that are left there. And we don't have absolute answers to that. But again, it's like, well, there's a, there's a reality that's going on here. It's not just symbolic language that's kind of illustrating some other point. There are historical realities or even the fact that like, you know, half the people at the foot of the cross, there are a bunch of Marys and then there, we got a couple of Jameses and it's kind of confusing. And nobody who is designing a story would have like the same names for this different characters. And, you know, so, so noticing the historical details is, is one value. And then asking questions about what could be the, the deeper meaning to these things or what other insights can we derive from praying about studying analyzing some of these uh, some of these data points and uh, I'll just mention one more from that particular um, example that you mentioned the young man Neoniskos in Greek that word appears only three times in all of the New Testament uh, uh, or at least in all of the Gospels the next time that it appears in Mark's gospel is at the tomb in the resurrection and there's a Neoniskos a young man clothed in white who is a witness to the resurrection and says to the apostles, uh, you are looking for the, uh, the crucified one. He is not here. He is risen. 
And so he becomes someone who's announcing the resurrection. Now, is that the same young man? And well, at least it's the same word. The evangelist intends to connect those two things. The man who is stripped in the garden is is the young man, Nanniskos, who is clothed in white now and becomes a witness to the resurrection because he's entered into the passion. And if I can bring in the elaboration I made before, he has been stripped by the passion to be like the state of paradise, but then has been transformed in the resurrection to now be clothed in radiance, in glory, in white, and is there as a witness to the resurrection. And that's the process of transformation that all of us need to go through. We all need to draw near to the passion of Christ, the revelation of God's love. We all need to be stripped of our own defenses and and uh, veils, the ways that we try to protect ourselves from God and to be exposed to God in that way. And we all need to be transformed in glory by that process of living more vulnerably and honestly in the in the sight of God. And so anyway, that's just like one way we can, you know, uh, explore a deeper meaning to that particular passage. And, and, and we're getting towards the end here, but you actually, um, I, the, the, the thought process I had come out, you might've changed up here a little bit because my assumption was when it was young man, they were talking about John um, because in the other gospels, it talks about how John's younger. He can run faster than Peter. And it also talks about that John, and this, I guess, is my assumption because I don't follow John during this portion of it. They follow Jesus and Peter following Jesus from a distance, um, a fearful distance. Um, and John goes to the women. John goes 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 to uh, to, to, to Mary because uh, he's with Mary at the actual cross whenever the crucifixion is hung. And it just it made me think about the difference there. Because the other nine at this point are not talked about. They scattered in the wind. Um, you know, no one knows what happened to him. Peter follows from what he believes to be a safe distance, and that's when he lies the three times and the, the denial. But John goes to uh to Mary to presumably warn her and or protect her, and then listen to her to actually go to the to the arrest and then eventual crucifixion. It's just a, a radically different way that they all addressed it. And then after the crucifixion, when they're living in hiding, it, it shows that this was real. This was scary. This isn't like, Oh, Hey, um, nothing big's going on here. And it, to me, it was just um, a wild way of looking at how different two people in essentially the same environment, how much things can change. Because in that initial moment, Peter's the one who fights. He's the one who pulls out the sword and starts attacking. And John gets attacked and runs away. But you look at which moment's more important. When it all came said and done, John went to go protect Mary. And Peter ran away at the actual crucifixion in the process thereof. And to me, it's a it's an interesting thought process of of going through all that um but you just say there that maybe that, that the young man was also the angel sitting on top of the uh the stone now kind of throws that off so but that was the thought process i was thinking of this you know well, approaching this conversation i like that i like all those thoughts and i'd have to look at the text more traditionally um so the young man at the tomb is not described as an angel he's described as a young man so that's that's an interesting note 
and and what all of that means again um maybe not in a literal connection to the young man in the garden but maybe a a sense of that kind of mystical path that we all have to go through but uh actually the typical interpretation is that the young man mentioned there is mark oh, okay. the evangelist and that's his kind of entrance into the passion and into the story and uh that's one of the reasons that he includes it in his gospel and others are not picking up on that detail to include it. Um, again, you know, there's a, there's no definitive statement for this. I don't know how ancient those traditions are. Sometimes we would say if all of the fathers of the church agree on it, or it, you know, it has a certain venerable uh, age, you know, that, that this has been the understanding from the beginning, the people who are closer to the historical events, then we would be inclined to, to trust in that interpretation. And I haven't studied any of that carefully enough to say off the top of my head. But um, anyway, one of the interpretations in this, Mark, I don't know if the, I can't remember well enough now if the gospel passages would prevent it from being John. Um, it's also a possibility that uh, it seems unusual that maybe that he wouldn't include that in his own gospel, I suppose, um, but not, not necessarily a, uh, I, I, I guess my thought is is it doesn't need to be hung up on that because the the part was still true that the other ten scattered and ran away like the, the, like that's either way John would have been one of the ones that scattered and ran away um, at least was my thinking of it and, and the yeah analogy, and the, I was all trying to get to the thought process of he ran away at first but then ultimately did the courageous thing of going there versus Peter who fought first and then ran away like. Is is one better than the other? Like, like what really matters? And that that was kind of the, the thought process I was getting to there. Even though I, you, you are correct there, uh, I, I mixed up which specific one is being discussed there. Well, and um, I I do think it's uh, it's indisputed that in one of the gospels it says everyone abandoned him or everyone left him. Uh, or even all of the apostles or all the disciples left him. Anyway, it's, it uses a, a collective, the, a total term. So the idea that John ran away and came back, I think that's indisputable. Whether John is the actual character in Mark's gospel who gets stripped as he is uh, getting attacked and runs away in that setting, that's that would be the only question. But your insight about John running away and coming back is is certainly correct. Yeah, and it's it, it's just something that I've been thinking about here. I know we're at the the conclusion of today's episode. Um, it might be something to think about in, in your own life moving forward. Is that when things get scary, what's harder to be in the initial wave or to be able to say, you know, I'm going to face it after I recollected my situation and my bearings, or am I going to be like the other nine and just keep running away and pretend it's not happening and then live in my own personal fears? Um, so. To the three different examples you see there, um, just to think about kind of when situations like this, maybe not as intense arise in our own lives, what is my game plan? How do I want to address this? And, and what is the situation there? So we hope that this episode has been helpful for all, and we will be with you all again next week.